Hey, welcome to another episode of the Beer and Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Ben Ryman. Uh, on the podcast today, we've got Jared Van. Jared, welcome to the show. Hi, how you doing? Stoked to have you. Before we get started, I just want to acknowledge I'm producing this podcast in the lands of the Comox, Homoko, Klehus, and Klaaman First Nations, who are one nation before we settlers came and stole their lands and throw them in the reserves. Uh, grateful to be here on the unceded lands of primarily the primarily the Klaaman people. Um, and uh, yeah, looking forward to uh, getting this conversation going. Um, so, so yeah, so Jared, uh, why don't you start by just, uh, you know, telling us a little bit about yourself, your, your, your kind of, maybe your kind of origin story, kind of how you got in the field and, and, uh, and, uh, how you got, uh, you know, especially interested in, um, in kind of the areas that you've been focusing on quite a bit. Absolutely. Um, right now I'm a PhD student at Penn state, but, um, getting there was tumultuous at best. Mm. I was terrible in school, in middle mm. and high school. I hated it. Mm. Um, and then after college, I graduated with a psychology degree. And the only thing that I could find a job with my psychology um, bachelor's with was being a behavior therapist. That was the title of the job mm. that I went for. Mm. And I learned a lot about behavior science. I had a little bit of learning about it in my um, uh, undergrad, but I started doing it and I really loved it. I realized I could go to school with the kids and then we could play around at recess. And then mm. I would go back and work with them in the classrooms. And I was was and am still just a big kid yeah. and enjoyed uh, working with them and worked with them really well. Mm. But I realized I'm doing well, but I could do better. So I need to go to school to do better. So mm. I went to go get my master's of science in applied behavior analysis at the Chicago School of Professional Psychology in the L.A. campus. And there I became really interested in precision teaching and the standard acceleration chart. Mm. Um, uh, and that led me to Dr. Richard Cabina, who wrote the precision teaching book. And I, I had his book and I was reading it. And um he was going to speak at my university one day. Mm. So I asked my supervisor, can I get the day off or the two days off to go? Mm. And she was like, yeah, um, mm. uh, you work really hard. You work really well. And even though we have a really, you know, uh, a client with a lot of needs and you're really serving them well, I'll give you these two days and you can come back and you can teach us what you learn. Nice. So I went and I brought my book, got it signed. And then I was just, it was an amazing time. And after I found Dr. Kabina on Instagram yep. and I DM'd him, is there anywhere I can go to get my PhD in the standard acceleration chart or precision teaching? And he said, well, I'm a professor at Penn State University. Um, you can <laughs> try to apply here and see if you can get in. Mm. And from a DM on Instagram, I became a PhD student at Penn State. So couple things resonate there for me so I, I i got in the field um a different route but i i did um i did do an undergrad in psych as well uh this was back in when was that gosh um uh, i think i got that i got that what did i get that degree it was like 97 98 and um at that time the only thing I could do with a bachelor's degree was keep working at McDonald's. Uh, <laughs> there was literally no options. Um, you know, there wasn't this sort of behavior therapist option. And and it just got me thinking just now, you know, our field is so 
I mean, I guess there, I guess you could sort of compare to the to the sort of school system as sort of an EA, but our our, our field is so rare in, in sort of this kind of helping field psychology kind of field that we have sort of entry level jobs that don't require any degrees, you know, and uh, and so it's interesting that you know all I could get with my BA was a job at McDonald's. But with your with your with your with your bachelor's in psychology, you got a you got a job as a behavior therapist, and and this is in you know in 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 the twenty first century when you know like I remember there there was there was a time you know I think before you know certainly in my my parents' time or whatever where a, a bachelor's degree in psychology could get you a good job and uh, mm -hmm. in the field or whatever and 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 you could really work from there um, and you know and and you know by the time it got to sort of you know my time. You know, there was no, there were no options at all, and and because you know, obviously at that point, RBTs and those sorts of things didn't really exist, and 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 uh, you know, funding and all that sort of thing wasn't wasn't around. I don't think it was around in, in in kind of my neck of the woods. I think autism funding didn't come into play until you know later on as well. Um, so it's it's just interesting that 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 ABA has this sort of entry level role where where I've interviewed folks from like social work and psychology and whatever, and there's not entry level roles for those folks. Mm -hmm. to sort of you know get their feet wet and and kind of get excited about about that sort of thing at the same time i've always found it kind of weird that you know and forgive me i'm, I'm really tangenting here on this comment um <laughs> that that we use the term therapist for for these sort of frontline yeah. you know non-degreed kind of folks and and so I don't know if there's really a question there, but I, I think it's just it's i just find it really interesting that 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 no, you I know we we have that thing I have, I, yeah, I definitely have something to say about that because yeah. I graduated in 2014 and that was a job I can get. And I was in um, California in the Bay yep. Area around San Francisco. Yep. And I moved back into my parents because it wasn't enough to be able to pay for rent. Mm. <laughs> I wasn't making enough. And mm. this was before RBTs were, you know, there and required yep. and necessary. And I think it's really a double edged sword in a way that when I became what was called at the time a behavior therapist, mm -hmm. the training was atrocious i mm -hmm. my first session was with a three-year-old a three-hour session in san francisco my supervisor didn't show up i didn't know what i was doing um and i'm it's, it's lucky i'm still in the field and that sh should never happen mm. um but when i moved to la and i started my my master's program i became what was called a behavior interventionist and in, like i think it was 2017 um and that's what uh, i think people are mostly called now if not a rbt registered behavior technician mm -hmm. um so when i was a behavior interventionist that's when i really you know a little bit like probably a year or two before then and then that's when i really came into understanding the science of behavior mm. rapidly applying it like as you know life was occurring but you know you shouldn't be able to just come out of school and get these jobs unless the schools were able to train you to get these jobs yep. in a really meticulous and really well way that described to you the science of behavior and then gave you deliberate practice where you went in, you engage and do the behavior, you receive feedback and you try again and you do it to a certain proficiency. I think that's mm -hmm. the way that it mm -hmm. should be. And then you could get out in four years and then get a job and be a behavior interventionist. Sure. But I don't think that they train you well enough to do so. And even now when I'm in school and I'm seeing the way um, they train and professors like also agree, like well, we just, this is the way we got to do it. Mm. I, I, I think it's insufficient mm -hmm. um, at best. 
Yeah, well, I mean, I, I'm sort of of the opinion. I think that there's a few folks out there. I mean, it's because 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 now they have this this RBT training, right? Which is like 40 hours of of whatever, you know, and certainly better than nothing. Um, and, and some of those courses are pretty good, um, uh, but it's literally a week of training, um, um, and and you can get you can get this gig, so you don't even need that sort of undergrad degree. And I'm sort of of the mind that, you know. Um, especially with kind of a lot of the conversations I've had with folks from other countries around sort of some of these other certifications like the IBA and the QBA and whatnot um, that don't have sort of the, that assistant level behavior analyst sort of level in their in their credentialing. Um, um, and instead, and, and sort of, I'm sort of the mind that BC, folks that get, that get enough training to become a BCABA, the BCABA should be sort of that standard for the RBT. Yeah. I yeah. agree. Yeah. And I think that um, college is an unfair uh, barrier to becoming a BCABA. I think that mm. I think that there should be a way to not accrue the the debt of college, yes. but still be trained highly to become a BCABA. Mm. You know, I mean, that 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 would be, in my opinion, a much better way. In a way, because college is so like, I, I don't know, I, I just have a way that I, I see it as a very predatory practice, asking a 17, 18 year old student to come into 50 plus thousand dollars in debt. Mm, um, and mm. then just being like, yeah, we trust you. Like, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Fair, fair. And, uh, and, you know, and I guess, you know, that's something I like about I'm not really that familiar with the QBA sort of uh, process, uh, although the episode with uh, Valeria Pareo. If you're planning on collecting continuing education credits for this episode, you'll need to enter the three secret words at www.cbiconsultants.com forward slash shop. The first secret word is precision. Please allow three to five business days to receive your CEU certificate. Yeah, I met her. Shout out to her. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, we talk a lot about the QABA, so you can kind of learn more about that there. But I'm familiar with the IBA because I was sort of involved. I'm been involved with their professional board, and uh, they have a. They actually have what kind of what you're talking about. They, they have a pathway to both. Um, so, so the IBT, which is sort of the RBT sort of equivalent, and they have a pathway to the IBA, which is sort of their, you know, equivalent to the BCBA, that doesn't require a degree. Okay, um, and, uh, and uh, because of, because for sure, folks like, like, you know, like, 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 you know, like us, folks that live kind of in, in, in North America, yeah, you got to accrue all this debt and so on and so forth. But for folks in, you know, in, you know, in Ghana, you know, there isn't even a program to go to. Um, yeah. um, and so it, in order to build kind of capacity in those countries, uh, you know, they need, they need an option. And, 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 and they, they understand that, that a lot, of, not, not only is the debt ridiculous, but a lot of the requirements to get the degree are most of the requirements to get those degrees are unrelated to the, the work you're doing. Um, I had, um, in fact, I had um, Kaylin Partlow on way back. Um, she was on that Love on the Spectrum, and um, she's an RBT down in, um, gosh, Georgia, maybe? She's down that way somewhere. And um, she was she's autistic, and she was saying she can't even get into a degree program 
um, uh, to, she wants to be a BCBA. She's super well-trained. She can't even get into a degree program because, because of she has dyslexia and dyscalculia. And, and I don't understand the whole university system, but essentially in order to get into university, you've got to have a math score or something on some sort of test or something. Like There's some GRE. Sort of, yeah. Like, something like uh, that. SAT, ACT. Yeah. One of those things. And, um, and she, because, and because of her dyscalculia, she'll, she, she'd never be able to pass a math course. Um, and what's math got to do with ABA beyond, you know, doing stats or whatever for research. Right. And usually mm-hmm. you get a statistician anyway, to kind of help you with all those sorts of things. So Absolutely. Yeah, there, there's a lot of barriers here for, for folks kind of, to kind of get in. And I think, we're kind of looking at some of that today in, in kind of some of the work you're doing and some of the goals you have around sort of, um, um, you know, how, you know, how we assess folks, how we educate folks, how we, kids, I mean, like that are in schools, mm-hmm. how, how do we prepare them, you know, sort of, so that they can eventually go into university or do whatever they want sort of with their lives. Um, um, and, and there's clearly, you know, from, Especially, so certainly for you know folks from kind of the the, the global majority, um, uh, and, and I think particularly Black and Indigenous folks in in North America, you know, um, in a lot of ways they're they're screwed when they're born, um, um, but certainly as soon as they enter that 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 K level of the K to twelve, you know, they're already at a, at a at a massive disadvantage. And I know you talk a lot about things like the prison, the school to prison pipeline, and and, abolition uh, and abolition yeah. through a behavior scientific lens yeah and you know the ways that we can ameliorate some of these issues through you know behavior science and abolition yeah 100 percent. actually i know I, i've heard you mention that before i wouldn't mind we're going to dive into precision teaching and stuff because i know that's your baby and, <laughs> and i definitely want to learn a lot more about that i haven't i've not had anyone on the podcast kind of talk about pt yet but I, i've heard you reference sort of this abolition piece and i'm wondering if you can kind of break that down for me Sure. I mean, fortunately, right before you came, I did my homework and I uh, took some notes on my thoughts on abolition through a behavior scientific lens. Um, many people think that abolition is about tearing everything down, but abolitionists yep. talk about building new forms of being, new structures and new systems and imagining ways to interact with each other, which improve everyone's lives that are not within our currently structured society. And from a behavior scientific view, it's Mm. about changing environmental variables through differential reinforcement. Mm. So abolition from a behavior scientific lens would be about changing our cultural environment. And um, Skinner Mm. taught us that there are three levels of selection or ways that the environment can apply itself upon a living being, Mm. phylogenic, ontogenic, and cultural. Stay with me, fam. (laughs) Phylogenic is natural selection of a species like Darwinism. Mm. Genes that get passed down, survive, and those that don't die. Mm. Um, Think the origin of species. Mm -hmm. Second, we have ontogenic. This is about how the environment changes an individual over their lifetime. Mm. I'm talking selection of behavioral characteristics of organisms as a result of interactions with the environment. Mm. You're talking classical and operant conditioning, mm. the behavior of organisms. You know, you go from right from species, um, origin of species to behavior of organisms. Um, then finally, we have cultural. And this refers to how the environment changes an individual over his or her life through imitation and modeling. 
And mm. we have a problem on the cultural level. I mean, on other levels, probably too, but definitely on the cultural level, which are cultural practices selected by consequences for value to the group and community. And these things would be like recycling. So abolition comes into play because it helps us recognize problematic environmental factors and conditions, which result in racism, ableism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia, Islamophobia, anti-Semitism, and other forms of prejudice, discrimination, and oppression. Mm. Abolition helps us identify and define the problem as the beginning to an intervention. It also helps us identify desirable alternatives and address harm while changing the structure of our environmental variables. And as many people know and are not likely to engage with, our culture is deeply rooted in anti-Blackness, anti-darkness, and really anti-anything other than cisgender, straight, white, Christian male. Yep. So um, that's kind of a brief rundown of abolition through a behavior scientific lens. And I think that it can help us um, really transform the way our world works because uh, behavior science, as we know, being behavior scientists can change how we behave. So if we add um, a theory of abolition, then we can use it to better identify or pinpoint the problem behavior and then identify desirable alternatives. Mm, okay. That's a lot. Can you can you can you kind of help? <laughs> sorry. No, no, don't be sorry. I mean, that that, that that's a, that's a, a a a good a good sort of breakdown sort of through that sort of behavior analytic kind of lens. But talking to the folks that aren't behavior analysts, okay. what 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 is it? What is it that we're looking to abolish per se here? Because I've heard a lot about abolition, particularly mm -hmm. you know, mostly from black folks. Um, so mm -hmm. clearly it's it's got to do with you know racism and and anti-blackness, which absolutely are ingrained in, in sort of our Western kind of capitalist system. Um, um, and so if we're kind of looking at this from like, you know, a school perspective, what, 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 what is sort of, uh, what is it that we need to change? What is it we're trying to, we're, we're, why, why are we using this term abol abolition? Okay. So, um, one of the things like in the school that we're seeing that kind of has discriminatory factors mm. are identifying um, students who are Black, Indigenous, and Latino at higher rates of being in special education right. or need, having a need for learning disabilities or having yep. a learning disability. Yep. Additionally, organizing them into um, different categories such as emotional behavior disorder at mm. higher rates than they exist within the population. So mm. that is disproportional um, occurrences of right. these things. So, for instance, uh, when you test for individuals to see if they are able to learn, are our measures able to be non-discriminatory? Well, no. Pretty much mm. all of the measures we use to identify students are yes. non are, are discriminatory. So okay. we need a non-discriminatory measurement system. We, we mm. know like even IQ, the Stanford Binet test, Binet was a eugenicist. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, these things are deeply rooted in racism and we need to identify how they are and then identify desirable alternatives. Ironically, the way that we can have non-discriminatory measurement is by using acceleration, which is the measure that gives that is given through precision teaching in the standard mm. acceleration chart. 
Yeah, we're 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 gonna get into that for sure because yeah, I, yeah, I love yeah. I love that point of it being sort of this only sort of non-discriminatory assessment. Okay, so I think that's a great example. And and so basically we've got these assessment protocols that are are essentially designed, maybe not intentionally, but certainly through bias and and, and kind of ignorance in the past, designed mm-hmm to assess the white, the white person, you know, and design based on white kind of, you know, white kind of uh, culture, Eurocentric culture. And, and, and they're at the, there are, they're essentially these kind of cultural variables that, that they don't look at. And, and instead of interpreting them as sort of, you know, you know, part of that, you know, maybe their, their collectivist, collectivist, uh, you know, sort of uh, culture or part of, you know, you know, uh, kind of, a, you know, family individualized sorts of, you know, differences and whatnot. Because sort of Eurocentric culture doesn't, you know, embrace any of those pieces, um, we instead look at those pieces as as sort of, you know, different from us, and so different from us is wrong, and therefore mm-hmm. you must be disordered, and that's basically how you kind of enter the world. Exactly. A deviation from the norm is a deviation from proximity to whiteness, because the norm is closer proximity to whiteness. Mm-hmm. And in America, there are um, in the United States of America, there are multiple systems of racism or systemic racism um, that fall under criminal justice systems, such as cis- sentencing, policing, and racial profiling. Mm. Socioeconomics, such as housing and utilities, employment, mm. voting, education, and healthcare. And if anybody wants to read like actual data, you can just Google Rose Wrist systemic racism mm. and up will come a long google doc with all this data on different ways there is systemic racism in the united states of america that's documented and factual so rose and what was the second word wrist w-r-i-s-t oh, wrist. okay perfect all right yeah wow, cool there there will be like a reddit uh link and then that will bring you to a google doc nice nice because so, the other thing is sort of around abolition, and I don't know if it's meant to sort of apply this way, or um, is is but but it's it 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 I like the term because it's made me think about sort of a lot of what what we do in terms of there's been a real push towards kind of cultural responsiveness, um, uh, you know, a- adapting you know certain current tools and whatnot from a sort of a cultural lens. Uh, you know, um, uh, uh, you know, Jimenez Gomez and, and sort of articles like that that sort of talk about sort of self-assessment and then some really good stuff that's coming out around sort of how can we look at the the sort of, you know, I, I think a, an example I often hear about, and I'm not sure why, is 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 is, is the VB map. And mm. uh, and that it's and, and I'm not a user of it myself, but but that there would be sort of and this is, you know, sort of a for folks who don't know the VB map, it's the the, the verbal behavior um, milestones of something or other. Um, that's mm-hmm. basically basically a, a assessment on that they use on on kids um, um, to to kind of look at sort of overall skill levels among across a bunch of different domains. Um, verbal behavior, obviously, being a big one, um, and uh, and the examples would be like you know um, you know. Just, just a hypothetical. I always hear about this one. Do, do, does Billy, you know, do, does does child use, you know, knife and fork to eat meal, right? And <laughs> um, 
And there's, of course, you know, uh, a lot of cultures where, you know, they don't use utensils at all. Um, mm -hmm. Or maybe they just use one utensil or they use a completely different utensil. Um, so there's lots of different ways that one can eat a meal. But this sort of item in the BB map, and don't quote me, I don't know if it's actually in the BB map, so forgive me, folks, if it isn't, um, uh, uh, is, is, is created to, to assess someone who comes from that kind of white Eurocentric Kind of, kind of background. It's not created to assess someone else. And so the suggestion is from a cultural responsive lens, um, you know, the, if, if you've done your proper intake, and there's some really good stuff around intake now and, and around sort mm -hmm. of, you know, really individualizing your intake so you can really know what to ask, you then know to go to that assessment and go, okay, how does, how does your family eat dinner? You know, mm -hmm. um, uh, we eat dinner with, you know, with our, with, we use our fingers and our, almost our food is chopsticks. Food. Yeah. Chops, chop, that's a great example. Chops. We use chopsticks. So now for this particular assessment, a B or whatever, three, we're going to say, does child use chopsticks, you know, correctly to eat a meal? And that's, and that's a nice sort of way to, to adapt. But then I've also heard that the, the sort of perception that, that, you know, is that the best way to go to sort of take these assessments and kind of tweak them for, you know, for different cultures, or do we need a completely different way of assessing folks that is, that is founded in, you know, anti-racism, anti-ableism, you know, pro-blackness and so on and so forth. Is that kind of what abolition is about too, or is that something different? I think um, that's, that's a lot about what abolition is, is about, is about starting from there and then pulling and, and identifying and imagining different ways of, of being and, and doing things. Because, I mean, one of the problems with, um, and I'm not a big VB map user, I don't use the VB map at all, to be honest, because I don't do that. Mm -hmm. um, but one of the things like in devils, uh, which is um, used in America as a way to identify or screen students for learning problems is they listen to students speak. Mm -hmm. And in different regions, there are cultural variations of speech and dialects. Mm -hmm. For instance, I'm Californian. Apparently, Californians don't say RTs. So I'll say Sacramento. I'll say Santa Barbara. <laughs> you know, I, I we, we don't say RTs. So I might lose points on my ability to speak because I don't say my Ts. So mm -hmm. different cultural variations are are not um are are, are not thought of when making these assessments. So you can try to reform as much as you can, but at what point is it like, we just, this is Theseus ship. We just need a ship, a new ship, you know? Um, right. And why not build up a new ship? And if there are things that have been used in the past that we find valuable, then we can use them. But we don't need to start from something that we already know is deeply rooted in racism, discrimination, and othering. I love that. Okay, so let, let's uh, let's let's talk about your 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 love of uh, of persistent teaching. I would like to go back a little bit to sort of when you were first kind of introduced to it. What what was it about persistent teaching that made you go, "Huh, I want to go this way"? The first thing was I had a professor. He worked at Morningside Academy. Um, well, he said. Um, I was able to tell that a student was getting sick 
by the changes on their standard acceleration chart. In precision teaching, we use the standard acceleration chart. Right. And let me explain how that it is. Yeah. The measures are so sensitive that he can see the changes and the dips in, in performance. And, oh, this kid's getting sick. And then surely enough, they would get sick and not show up the next day. I uh, was at Fit Learning and I decided to be a student and I had my allergies. And I was doing my timings. And because I was sneezing and sniffling and wiping my nose so often, my performance was lower than previous performances across other days. So mm. you can clearly see that there was some type of environmental factor resulting in a dip or lowered level of performance. And I was like, what the heck? I got to check this out. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this, is, this is incredible. And 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 then now one of the things that I think most is, is like one of the biggest key things about it. I mean, there's so many things about it, but like imagine the fact that when we look at graphs, we can't quantify the rate of change. You just say it's increasing or decreasing. Mm -hmm. And it's like, yo, that's not scientific. That mm -hmm. we, we would get laughed at the scientific table because we don't put numbers to the rate of change. With the standard acceleration chart, you could say there's a times two or a doubling of behavior. You could say there's a divide by two or um, uh, a, a doubling of de not decreasing, but deceleration of behavior. So we can identify with numbers the difference, and then we can communicate with each other about that difference through numbers so we can better provide services to the client i mean mm. or to the learner to the kid to the person we need to be able to communicate with numbers what the value is i mean you wouldn't see um uh 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 what do you call them? Um, you wouldn't see so, an engineer measuring in refrigerators or shacks. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, you need standard units. So when you standardize your units and your practice, then you can have better scientific rigor. And we're missing that in behavior science and behavior analysis. Okay, so just going back to your earlier point here, um, and, and again, I'm sort of speaking from, I, I definitely understand the value of PT. Um, I've, uh, I, I, I took Dr. Kabina's kind of month-long course on central reach during the during the pandemic and loved it. Um, and um, uh, you know, granted, we I don't use it in my practice, and that's something maybe we can talk about later. Uh, you've talked about maybe a, a little bit of education for me on kind of how to get it going. But you you say that we folks will be sort of laughed at if we just said increasing or decreasing. But isn't that what we do in science? Like. You don't really see sort of deceleration and, and acceleration, or do you in like other fields? Is, is it is it used in other fields? Or have you seen it like not coming from the precision teaching lens, but is is acceleration mm -hmm. in any way a, a, a measure that's used in sort of other fields? Any like, well, acceleration things accelerate and decelerate in like physics, right? Okay, yeah. Um, and then we measure our performance values in frequency, which is count over time, and mm. frequency is a measure in other sciences as well. Right. And when we say something real quick, I'm going to hop on my frequency is count over time. It's not just count. You know, yeah. if something happens frequently, it happens often. It, you can't take the time out of it. So, yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, knock those people. But <laughs> um, additionally, when we look at the standard acceleration chart, it's a ratio chart. So when behavior uh, scientists and behavior analysts see it, they're like, oh my God, what the heck is that? But when people that look at ratio charts, which are physicists and people in other hard sciences, when they look at it, they're like, oh yeah, I get it. 
Um, mm. Change is relative and it's not absolute. You don't use absolute change because using absolute change would be ridiculous. <laughs> and, and, and like it, it, other sciences would, res- would be respected more <laughs> because we would be having a, a grander scientific rigor uh, than mm. we do now. And we are failing. Additionally, we're failing our clients by not having that scientific rigor because right now we're measuring things, assuming that all behavior, all children, all people, all environments are the same because mm. we're measure, measuring in that absolute graph instead of saying that, oh, no, behavior is relative and change is relative to other change. So we need to account for past behavior. Mm-hmm. Those, you know, equal interval graphs don't do that. Mm-hmm. So that's an interesting point. Again, and this idea of, of a ratio of a ratio chart, that's mm-hmm. not something we created. No, there is an article Dr. Kabita sent me from 1912 talking wow. about why people should use ratio charts. And maybe I'll send it to you. You yeah, sent it yeah. to me and I was like, this dude is, he was spitting, but he was also, you know, some of those old articles, he'd be like, uh, what, what is that example? What is that? What do you mean by that? You know? Yeah, yeah. So it was a little bit hard for me, you know, to decipher. So I had to, you know, reread it and stuff, but this is going on for a long time. And not only do we need to use ratio charts, we need to standardize the charts we use. You can't have everybody using different charts, changing the axes, making their interventions look more or less effective than they mm-hmm. were just because you're changing the axes and the numbers on the axes. Mm-hmm. That is ridiculous. And you also can't compare across environments, across behaviors, across people. It's straight up ridiculous when you really start to get into it. And that's why a lot of behavior, that's why a lot of precision teachers are frustrated with the behavior analytic community. Because it's like, when you actually take a second to look and what's going on with the standard acceleration chart and precision teaching, you will never go back because you will be like, going back like that is, and I don't want me to be rude, it's not only unethical, but it's like going back in in um, scientific uh, rigor. Like uh, <laughs> Dr. Gabino likes to give the example, doctors use EKGs and everyone right. has the same EKG um, chart and you, you just have different measures on it depending upon the person's right. uh, whatever. So imagine if you have one, if you go to a doctor in New York or yours, and, and then you go to a doctor in New in your city and you give them the chart, the chart, they'll, they'll be able to read it easily and understand mm. everything that's going on mm, because mm, it's mm. standardized. Right. Um, and that's science. Science is standardized. We use standard units. And so why aren't we doing that in our behavior science? Well, we're a young field, but mm. we gotta grow. <laughs> yeah, we're young. I, I'm yeah, and and just quick rant i'm i'm tired of the excuse that we're a young field you know i think we've been around long long enough to to put some stuff together you know i i feel like if we we can't figure out some of these basic things you know like like it took us till 2020 to write a paper that said that had the word compassion in it you know um you Mm -hmm. know we're we're taking up we're taking way too long to do some of these basic things um that that you know other fields that have been around you know not that much longer than ours have, have been quite successful in doing, particularly looking at psychology and school psych and other folks like that. So I definitely don't, I don't buy the, 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 the young field argument. Um, and, and, and I saw you nodding. I know you feel the same. <laughs> um, so, so 
definitely, and I've heard this this sort of argument many times from the from that from precision teaching folk, um, uh, not on the podcast per se, but just in conversation that the, the, this frustration sort of with our field. So, what are kind of some of the origins of precision teaching, and 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 why do you think you know? Folks didn't sort of grab right onto it because I know I know this goes back to folks like Ogden Lindsley, who was you know mm-hmm. you know kind of well connected with Skinner and you know they hung out and and um, he was and, his student. Uh, yeah, exactly. You know they were all buds, yeah. and 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 um, there was a few other students there. And so, what 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 was what was it about Og that's that 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 made folks go, oh no, he's a freak. Let's just keep doing our own thing. All right, super dope history lesson, real quick. Nice. Um, so. Ogden Lindsley was the student, a student of B.F. Skinner. And then after he was working, you know, with rats and, you know, experimental analysis of behavior, um, uh, he uh, he went to work with humans. He opened the first human operating laboratory and he worked with people that were basically institutionalized. and he identified that there was a need to have behavior. This is the first time any behavior analysts were or behaviorists were working with humans on this level. Hmm. And um, he was in Kansas. So when he was working with them, he was also working with teachers. And he was working with teachers. And he realized like one time every teacher was going to come up and show their chart. And they showed their chart of their students' behaviors, and it took 20 minutes just to explain why their chart was labeled and, and graphed like it was and what was going on. Mm-hmm. And he was like, dang, this is taking way too long. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We got to figure out a way to, you know, standardize this. So he and his students, it wasn't just him, and he always gave credit to his students. Mm-hmm. Um, he and his students, such as Eric um, Houghton, uh, mm-hmm. made uh, v- different variations of the standard acceleration chart until they got to the final one. Uh, it's blue. Um, th- there are ones with different colors. Um, and they went on, decided on blue because they scientifically tested which one caused the least eye strain and had the most accuracy. Oh, wow. And um, blue one was the one. They they did a social validity test, I guess, and they saw that green was the most liked one, but blue <laughs> resulted in the highest accuracy and least eye strain. So they went with oh, that. I love that. Um, so they, they started using it and they started realizing stuff like, hey, yo, Behavior doesn't add and subtract, it multiplies and divides. Mm. So then when you think about the fact that you're using an add and subtract graph, an equal interval graph, to measure behavior, which multiplies and divides, the math ain't mathing. Like, <laughs> something's messed up here. So, I mean, then you you can't, like, you know, reconcile the fact that every time you're using this equal interval graph, you're not... Um, you, the, the display, and you're trying to make uh, changes based on the data display. You're not going to make very good or accurate changes because you're straight up just looking at a display that's not giving you the most precise measurements. Which is mm. why in precision teaching, um, they give more, uh, try to give more precise measurements. And it's called precision teaching because he was working with teachers, and he wanted it to be for teachers because he mm-hmm. wanted to dedicate his life to improving education. 
And uh, that's what he did. Uh, and he had a lot of incredible students. If anybody needs some article to read, one of the most seminal articles in all of behavior analysis is uh, Behavioral Fluency by Carl Binder. Um, mm. You'll have to, it's 1996. Um, if I'm messing up, it's behavioral fluency, a new paradigm, something like that. Yeah, yeah. But I know it's binder 96. So y'all, y'all, y'all will find it. And there is so much in that article. And it's one of the most cited articles in our field. Yet yeah. so many people haven't read it. Um, so it's just, you know, yeah. That, I hope that answers your question. Yeah, no, for sure it does. And so well, it kind of does, but the, the one piece I'm still not sure, not understanding is sort of why, and maybe this is your frustration. Maybe you're not, you, you still don't know the reason for this. Mm -hmm. um, I see lots of articles. I see lots of work, especially from Dr. Gabina in more recent times, kind of comparing, um, you know, the, the equal interval stuff to the standardized stuff and, and, and just showing why, you know, it makes so much more sense to use those. Um, um, is it do, do folks do folks like do some do some of the sort of the the you know kind of look at more the kind of the more well known folks in our field you know we're not going to name names but mm -hmm. um, these these sort of well known clearly intelligent you know doctoral level you know well trained but doing this for a long time don't use this chart do, do folks like that have reasoning behind it do they do they just not agree they just not, it's going to make sense or are they just sort of is it, are they too lazy like I mean what's happening? I get this question a lot. I think your question is, if standard acceleration charts are so great, why doesn't everyone use them? Yeah. Um, well, many people don't know about them. That's one. Mm -hmm. So why provides uh, so much more information when people don't know about them? They're not mm -hmm. taught about how to utilize the information they provide. They're not taught to use the standard acceleration chart. Um, and also, I asked Dr. Kabina this question, and yeah. he said, um, think about it from a systems perspective. We yeah. would have to change what and how we train BCBAs in a yeah. huge fashion. Yeah. So that's a large undertaking. And, you know, it, I guess, sorry, BCBA or BACB, but you don't get this. You don't get the smoke. Um, they straight <laughs> up cut out the standard acceleration chart from the task list. Um, and that just makes it, you know, further away from being used. And, you know, there was a lot of frustration from AUG, you know, from, you know, people not using it. And if we think about it from a behavior science lens, you know, mm -hmm. behavior goes or reinforcement flows, yeah. you know, so what in the environment is not providing enough reinforcement for behavior change? You know, if I want anybody to try to use the standard acceleration chart, I'll tell you right now, one of the best ways to do it is chart your own behavior. I charted mm -hmm. my inner behavior, my thoughts, feelings, and urges. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you can just count how many times you feel a positive thought or feeling and then a negative thought or feeling. You could chart it on the chart. And mm -hmm. then you can do a one-minute timing of just thinking of, or writing down positive thoughts and feelings. And you'll recognize your positive thoughts and feelings are likely to increase substantially um, and then de their negative thoughts and feelings likely to decrease substantially. 
And you have to actually engage in the behavior to get reinforcement from the behavior. Mm-hmm. So, uh, or to come into contact with reinforcement. Um, and when you do that, you can see patterns that you couldn't otherwise see. You could chart mm. your one minute timing and your all day timing on the same chart because mm. you can chart measures from 1000 per um, per minute to one per day. Mm. You don't need different charts because you're scaling in a specific way that the ratios make it so. So, I mean, people That's don't cool. know this. Yeah, I, I think so too. Um, <laughs> <laughs> people don't know about this. And people aren't taught about this. It's not talked about. And additionally, um, some of the, some, some, a lot of people don't preach it um, once they kind of know about it. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of uh, people that I look up to and I'm like, so why aren't you charging? Mm-hmm. Like, did you, did you just not get a person to know, to teach you? Because we have these things called chart parents, which are, hmm. we call the people that taught us how to chart, um, you know, and it's, it takes a lot of effort, you know, to to teach somebody to take. I mean, imagine me taking time out of my day to teach you how to mm-hmm. use this. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? So that's time away from me and time to you. It's costly. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. what's the cost of that time? So we all have chart parents where we can like look at this tree and then we go to the BCBA. We can go to the um, PT conference. Mm-hmm. We um, we look at the tree. Everybody writes down, okay, who's your chart parent? And then you ah. can see how the tree like leads back to like Og and wow. um, yeah. So we we the, these mentors or chart parents are how the the message really gets relayed. And um, uh, I, I think that we need more chart parents out there. But, you know, if you want a chart parent, I would highly re- recommend, um, why am I blanking on her name? I will, I will think of it in a second. But um, there are a few people that are actually teaching the chart um, out there. And they, you know, sometimes they have free webinars and sometimes they cost money, but um, you definitely can go to my page to find them. Um, and and they are trying to preach the gospel. But I mean, imagine if it's just like two groups of people. I know that Fit Learning will help you chart. And um, Amy Evans, Amy Evans, she's a lot of people's chart parents because she does the work of training people and organizations how to chart and they do that through octave innovation yeah no definitely familiar with amy evans she's a a well-known name that makes a lot of sense okay so we'll we'll stop sort of the you know sort of beating the horse of uh of why (laughs) and and talk more about the what so you you were talking you talked about about a couple things in there so we got this chart we got this sort of logarithmic is another term i've heard ratio Mm -hmm. chart that allows you to sort of look at a whole bunch of different sort of um, you know, um, 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 sort of situations all in one graph, which is amazing. Uh, I hear a lot about this thing about timings. And, and like I heard. The second secret word is human. I heard something the other day. I think I might actually actually have been from Fit Learning or someone like that, where they were talking about sort of uh, maybe it was actually it was from one of your one of your posts, um, but around uh, probably from one of your posts around how um, you know just uh, I think they were talking about maybe like like literacy or something reading or, or math or whatever the idea that one could spend a half an hour a day um, you know uh, uh, you know in, in sort of a precision teaching sort of 
context of learning and 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 and, and jump like multiple grade levels in in sort of in sort of skills and that just kind of blows my mind in in terms of sort of the efficiency of things so can you talk a little bit about you know what yeah, this that was thing me about- that post was me that was you. Can you tell me a little yeah. bit about, the, about what these things are about about, about timings and uh, like what 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 are timings? How 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 can timing for one minute be effective? Like how does that all work? Okay, so there's a good story behind it, and then there's also like you know the lo- logistics. Yeah. So first of all, all behavior happens in time. You can just take time. And you could take behavior, but behavior always has time. You can't take time out of behavior because mm-hmm. all behavior happens across time. Mm-hmm. So when we're measuring behavior, we need to also make sure we measure how much time in that behavior took or in how much and what kind of time that behavior occurred. So when we use the standard acceleration chart, we note with a dash um, from left to right um, what amount of time the recording took place. So you can say a behavior happened 15 times, but that doesn't mean anything unless you tell me how long occurred for that, you know, chunk of behavior. Um, Because, I mean, it could be 15 times across a day. It could be 15 times in 15 seconds. That matters. That information Mm -hmm. matters. So Mm. these timings happened with, um, they call them one minute timings. And they're really good because um, Ogden was Ogden Lindsley was actually against doing one minute timings because he's like, you know, we don't want to do that. Um, it, it's bad. You know, it's using like interval recording or whatever. But um, Eric Houghton came back with data that showed students were improving drastically by doing one minute timings of like, you know, math facts, one minute mm. timings of readings. And when you measure in one minute uh, or or a, or a smaller amount of time, you can make sure the person doesn't get fatigued with doing the behavior because you want to make sure that they're, you know, they're able to have that behavior at a good, steady pace. Um, so we do one minute timings because then we can measure the behavior across time and see how the behavior grows or decays using the same amount of time across time. Because the rate of acceleration, you know, frequency is count over time. Acceleration is count over time over time. Okay. <laughs> and that's kind of trippy to think about and say. <laughs> but, um, and I'm no mathematician, believe me, my math levels are terrible. But yeah. <laughs> what we find is using these one minute timings, 30 second timings, 15 second timings, they can improve an individual's level of frequency. And when you improve their levels to a specific rate, you can get fluency, which is mm. which is when you can really see amazing performances. And with fluency, they've recognized you get areas, which is application, um, retention, uh, endurance, uh, app- uh, adduction, and stability. And these are all uh, identified effects of fluency that, mm. you know, you can apply it and you can apply it to, you know, similar problems that you've learned under. You can be stable in the face of of distractions. So like if you're a fluent reader, you can be able to read even if there's like, you know, a go-kart going on in the background. You can endure for longer periods of time than that minute and keep that same pace. You can um, you can adduct 
and adduction is a whole different thing. Um, But uh, but it's where you can recruit that behavior to new situations and environments. And then you can also retain information like a lot of people learn stuff in school, but they can't do it later or they can't remember it later because they didn't get to fluency. When you get to a specific level of fluent uh, fluency, then you're able to retain that information even for long periods of time. I did Mm. these things called SAF meds, uh, say all uh, everyday fast minute, everyday shuffle, something like that. And it's like flashcards. I did them for for a minute. I will always remember what a prompt is. It's a supplemental antecedent stimuli used to occasion the correct response in the presence of the SD that will eventually control the behavior. Because I built fluency Mm. or I built my frequency up to I got to a level of that is fluency and I will retain that information as I go Mm. on. So when we get fluent learners, they are also having more fun. People, I would say people hate doing math because they're just not fluent at it. Yeah. You know, it's not fun to not be fluent. And kids have to not be fluent at things all day. They have to try to read and they can't read. They got dyslexia or they have dyscalculia, so they have to do math. But when they get to fluency, then they're having fun. They also mm-hmm. understand it better. And then there's also no cheating because when you're fluent, it takes longer to cheat than it does to just do the behavior. If uh-huh. I'm fluent in my math facts, it'll take me longer to use a calculator than it would for me to just answer the problem. Wow. Yeah, that's cool. And so, and so then again, it, it, it goes back to the chart to sort of determine when they are fluent, like how, how is sort of fluency sort of recognized? Is it, you know, Ooh, it's, that's it's sort a of great question. Yeah, yeah. We have different fluency aims for different skills mm-hmm. and precision teachers have ident- identified many for academic purposes and also for um, functional movement. Mm-hmm. Um uh, so we have certain aims that are like, I think I saw 80 to 60 words, um, uh, correct, uh, letters per minute for uh, correct numbers per minute when you're doing like math facts. Mm. Um, and so there are specific fluency ranges that will, you'll get the effects of fluency. Those effects that I told mm. you areas and fun, um, so we we need to identify more though because we have these you know academic things and we have these you know movement things but we also what about you know uh 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 things that are for athletic performance you know what are the fluency mm. ranges for that i mm. looked at steph curry uh what i believe is the greatest shooter of our, shooter of all time mm. and i looked at how he shoots the ball he shot 105 threes in 5 minutes so I looked at each minute and in each minute he had stability shooting 25 threes. And then there was a little bit of time after. So if you can shoot a three 25 times and make each one of them and within five, a little five minutes, 15 seconds, then you should be able to get the effects of shooting like Steph Curry. So we can identify different fluency ranges by seeing nice. fluent performers. And yes. we use the chart to identify changes in people's rates and um, how quickly they're changing. We use it for a lot of things, but yeah. we can see how quickly they're cha- they're changing due to our intervention. And then we could be like, this intervention is changing their behavior quickly enough. Or we could say that their behavior is not changing quickly enough because we can quantify it. We could say it's a measure of one point 
zero two, which is not fast enough. And our learner is we can project the line to see how long it's going to take them to get there. They, they're going to take forever. We got to mm. stop and change our intervention so that we can have a quicker rate of change and have that person accelerate beyond um, what we're doing now. Yeah, <laughs> I love that. So, and then this this again goes back to that graph again because with these sort of equal integral graphs, there's no sort of there's really no sort of mm -hmm. target that you're trying to achieve. It's just you know it's going up, it's going down. But what's good, what's bad, you don't really know. So, and this kind of reminds me of sort of the conversations we a lot of folks have had sort of you have early on in your in your sort of grad undergrad or grad programs around how to how to create a task analysis. So we, when you create a task analysis, you know essentially. You know, for folks that know task analysis, it's essentially, you know, the the steps required to you know uh, achieve a task. It's like a recipe mm -hmm. for how to do something, um, and can become quite specific. And we were taught the best way to create a task analysis is to find a competent performer in that task, um, mm -hmm. and, and 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 ask them sort of you know what 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 are the steps they use to sort of achieve this, and then use that to kind of base your task analysis on. And so it sounds like similarly with fluency. You can look at someone who's, you know, clearly a great performer in any kind of skill, measure their fluency using these measures, mm -hmm. and then use that SE chart as, and then that becomes your aim or sort of your goal. And then you can use the chart to sort of determine how quickly or slow it's taking them to reach that point. Absolutely. And like a quick and dirty way to do it in a classroom is to be like, okay, Johnny is the best one at reading mm -hmm. and we want to get everybody to Johnny's level. So yeah. we're going to see how many words he can read per minute correctly. And we're also going to measure incorrects, but we're going to see what his rate of performance is. And we're not going to just take one performance. Uh, we're going to take multiple and see that average. And we're going to try to get all students into that, into that aim, that, that aim area. And we can get everybody to read like Johnny. Mm -hmm. Additionally, on your thing, when you're talking about a task list, uh, not a task list, but um, task analysis, uh, yeah. a task analysis. Um, precision teachers identify that sometimes task analyses aren't the best way to get a, a, a learner to engage in a chain of behaviors. Hmm. For instance, they found that there's this thing called the big six plus six, um, hmm. where you can uh, teach individuals like we... We like to, you know, if you want to teach someone an independent living skill and sure. you want them to button them, their shirt up, you know, yep. there are certain pieces like you need to be able to pinch your fingers and you need right. to be able to move your fingers in certain ways. So they identified six and six um, uh, behaviors that all people need to have a certain level of fluency with to be able to be competent performers in just their movements. Mm. Um, and the six, six, six. Big six plus six are reach, point, touch, grasp, place, release, push, pull, shake, squeeze, tap, and twist. And mm. they found frequency aims that individuals need to be at to be able to do things such as grab a cup and drink. And a real mm. life example is somebody named Terry. He had he was a, a, a kid with CP and they said that he was and doctors said that he was going to be hospitalized forever. He'd never be able to go to the bathroom on his own. He'd never be able to walk. He'd never be able to do anything on his own. And he would need to be institutionalized forever. Right. Then precision teacher Eric Cotton came in and mm -hmm. he identified, uh, he and his others identified the big six plus six 
taught him to get to higher levels of uh, frequency. And then he he learned and was able to drive. He learned to walk. He learned to go to the bathroom by himself. He got his master's. He is a motivational speaker now. They wow. took him skiing in, in, in Canada. It's a big, like, because uh, Eric Hodden was from Canada. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, he uh, he was able to do all that because they just, they didn't do task analysis and everything. They just trained up that big six plus six. So if we worked with... Um, physical therapists and occupational therapists and having individuals increase their big six plus six movements to certain frequency levels, then we can get incredible changes in performance with people that we never thought would be able to do it. Wow. Wow. And I've heard a bit about the big six plus six, but I appreciate the, re the, the refresher. It's, it's, uh, and, and, and it's interesting that the, 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 that I brought up task analysis and, and that you were able to sort of make, make that connection because yeah, it makes a lot of sense because often when folks are, I think, and, and I say often, but from my own experience, when, when folks are sort of teaching the steps in a task analysis, you'll find, you know, students can get, you know, the first few or the, or the last few or whatever. And they struggle with some of these, you know, certain skills in between. And so it ends up being sort of, well, their support worker or parent or whoever, they'll just do that step for them. Um, and then they can sort of do the rest. And then, and that just means we can help them a lot less. Um, mm -hmm. But it's really not, you know, it's, it's really, again, it's not really standardized. It's not really looking at sort of, you know, you know, what's it take to sort of learn each step? How did you determine those steps? And, um, and, 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 and how, how efficient is, is, is it to sort of teach those steps in that way? I have a question around. So, so looking at precision teaching, we've got, We've got, um, uh, you know, we've got, we've got, we've got the standardized charting. We've got this timing towards a goal of fluency, which makes a lot of sense. Um, um, and then, and then I know we also have, um, which I want to get into, uh, sort of this pinpoint plus versus operational definition thing, which I've seen Dr. Kubina write a lot about. I want to kind of touch on that as well, which is basically mm -hmm. kind of how how we're going to sort of, you know very you know specifically define what that behavior looks like mm -hmm. what what does the actual teaching look like so it's called precision teaching so what do you mm -hmm. what, what are you doing maybe that's differently that's uh that in, in terms of teaching a skill like what, what what are you actually doing there is is that stuff just back to sort of standard kind of aba practices prompting in the whole nine yards or is it something different too um I think that's a great question. That's a really common question. So I'm really glad you asked. Mm. Um, the precision, the, the name and label precision teaching might be uh, a misnomer in a way, mm. um, because when you're talking about precision teaching, it's really a system of measurement. Uh, hmm, let me let me let me define it a little bit more specifically. It's uh, it uses a set of measurement procedures for monitoring behavior and making decisions about the effectiveness of any teaching technique, curricular mm. methodology, or behavior intervention. Mm. Put simply, precision teaching is a way to measure the quality of instruction or intervention using the standard acceleration chart and make rapid database decisions. So the, mm. the teaching is it, it might be like, you know, it kind of throws people off that don't really know about it. Mm -hmm. I believe that it's really an, a way to detect 
and identify behavior, measure that behavior, and then see, are we going in the right direction fast enough? Mm-hmm. And that is incredibly valuable to our science into the world because we use visual displays to make decisions. Yeah. If we're not actually using our visual display to make decisions, or if we're not making a decision for a very long time and we're losing time that we could have stopped and changed, then we have a problem with the way our procedures are designed. So precision teaching comes in and it's like, let me provide these methods and measurement uh, designs to improve your um, detection of behavior and determine whether or not you need to make changes in your instruction or intervention. Hmm. So it's really precision measurement, precision assessment. It's not really precision teaching per se. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it was for teachers. That's why he was like, you know, precision teaching. Yeah. It'll yeah, be for yeah. y'all. You know, it's for education. Um, but, you know, that's that's early. And I think that it's one of those things that it's like, that's the name that they came up with. And yeah. now we're kind of stuck with it. I mean, a little history lesson behavior analysis, B.F. Skinner did not want it to be called behavior analysis. He and Ogden Lindsley voted against it. They were the mm. only ones that voted against it. Wow. Yet the other b- members in the body uh, voted for it and they were outvoted on it being called uh, precision, I don't know, not precision, analysis. but behavior analysis. Mm. So, I mean, even that is problematic. Do you know what they wanted to call it? All the precision teaching uh, community <laughs> is going to be like screaming in their microphones right now. Yeah, um, yeah, 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 I, yeah. I need you to get Dr. Andrew Bulla on. He's got so much history. He, he'll even tell you how like in okay. uh, Skinner's original uh, book, um, his 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 measurement was like it was was off or tapped or whatever. So right. like all the measurements he realized were were wrong. Like yeah, not yeah. not wrong, but like there was there was a, a, a an issue. It would the issue was consistent, but it, it, it was wild. Um, so yeah. if I think about it, I'll let you know. But it wasn't uh, behavior analysis was not the thing. It was behavior something else. Yeah, yeah. No, I, yeah, I appreciate that because yeah. There, because uh, you know, I, I won't, won't tangent too much, but there are some problems with a lot of the terminology in our field. We've talked about jargon and whatnot. It sort of sends the wrong message, you know. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, I think you know, you know, I think I think you know, a, a big chunk of some of the, the 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 complaints about our field have been around just these terms like stimulus control. Like it doesn't stimulus control doesn't mean you're trying to control someone, but it's got the word control in it and it sends that mm-hmm. wrong message. Just like I think precision teaching, you know, could probably be come off as offensive to folks that are teachers um, that weren't that didn't know Og back in the day uh, because they're like, what are you saying? What are you saying? Are you think I'm not I'm, you're saying I'm not a good teacher? No, you're a great teacher. I'm just going to help you measure you know, how, how well you're teaching, you know, with a lot more accuracy, with a lot more precision. And so, you know, I think even though it's called precision teaching, maybe if you're trying to introduce it to uh, folks sort of outside of the field, you can always uh, switch up the language. Exactly. So let, let's get into this other piece around the, the, the pinpoint operational definition bit. So anyone who's, uh, you know, anyone who's not in our field probably don't know either of these terms uh, at, very well, uh, but essentially, you know, I'll take the operational definition side, you can take the pinpoint side, but essentially, mm-hmm. um, you know, an operational definition is, is, is a, is a, is a objective kind of, you know, measure 
or no objective, sorry, description, uh, you know, of a behavior. So that when, when I write down this description uh, in this sort of way, and, and it's basically, you know, it's got certain components, including things like examples of, of what it might look like and not examples of what it wouldn't look like and so on. The idea is that any behavior analyst at least can look at that, can, can, can look at that behavior and look at that description and 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 observe the same thing, and so we see this a lot in in research. We talk a lot about uh, inter-observer agreement and the mm-hmm. idea that that you want to make sure your 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 observations are accurate by having a second independent observer. You know, essentially, you know, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Confirm that your observations are accurate. And the way they do that mm-hmm. is by having a really specific written definition. This has become basically the standard in our field. You can't create a measurement system until you have this operational definition in place and uh, mm-hmm. and that's drilled into us. Uh, then I then I take Dr. Gabino's course in uh, you know in 2020 there and he's like, you know, scratch that. <laughs> and I'm like, what, what wait, wait a second, what's going on here? So what is this pinpoint plus and 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 why are why do precision teachers really advocate for this approach versus the operational definition? Well, for the operational definition, there are like five or six shortcomings from a theoretical, practical, and applied perspective. Mm. Um, They differ from the constructs they represent. They're often subjective and arbitrary. They are difficult to operationalize and measure accurately. They may lead to low signal detection for measuring a target behavior. Uh, They may not match with the actual events people who experience the operationalized target behavior or with those events. And a lot of times the ones that I've seen, they're just slapped together and sometimes they have more than one behavior in the operational definition. Mm. Also, there is no formula for creating an operational definition that is standardized. Mm. So operational definitions, and Dr. Kavina did research on this, he saw that Compared to Pinpoint Plus, operational definitions are uh, individuals are not going to be able to identify the behavior with the same IOA inner observer agreement because the operational definition is of less quality than the Pinpoint Plus. And I am probably butchering his article when I describe it like that, but I'm just trying to, you know, get no, it No, no, but you're, you're, it's interesting you, you talk about, the, you know, you're going to get into the point with my plus in a second here, but since you talk about sort of the, 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 four, the five or six sort of, you know, problems with operational definitions, all the problems you just listed are what everyone says operational definitions are made to do. They're made to be not objective. They're made to make it look the same. They're made to make it look accurate. But you're saying that 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 the the research is showing that it, they actually don't do any of those things. Well, they something they I I probably misspoke. It's something they don't do any of those things. They don't do it to a degree that's high enough for scientific rigor for good application. Mm. Uh, they they mm. they may have served a purpose for a while, like it's the best right. we got, but. Yeah. At a certain point, you need to be more precise. Yeah, and yeah, with yeah. precision teaching, you can be more precise with your pinpoint plus because there's actually a formula. Mm, and yeah. everybody's description will be kind of designed in a similar fashion okay. so we can better detect the behavior. Because if you can't measure it accurately, you're not going to get good data to be able to identify what level is it at. Is it changing how we want to? I mean, then your whole your whole intervention is skewed. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I like the and, and the, the the last point I think was was when you're listing them off. I think was was the most important was that you know there is no like there's no formula. There is no way to create an operational definition that everyone's going to use. And so I can operationally define you know uh, you know uh, you know drink it drink it I drink it a, a bottle of water. Um, and someone else can operationally define it using the methods they were taught and come up with completely different definitions of drinking a bottle of water. Mm -hmm. So what's a pinpoint plus and, and, and what makes it, what makes it better? And, and uh, I feel like there was, there was a pinpoint without a plus before. So why the plus? <laughs> <laughs> okay. So the plus is the learning channel. Learning channels are a way to identify how sensory information oh, yes, is coming things. in our body and sensory information is going out of our body. So we have a learning we have sensory ends yeah. and we could say that that's you know when you uh touch taste sniff see hear mm. feel or like freely think of something and yeah. then you have sensory outs such as you know point tap touch twist say mm. do push that's familiar yeah. So you can you can identify and better describe the behavior because you're describing how what sensory information to look for for the in and then what sensory information to look for for the out. And so let's say uh, there, there are three parts to uh, Pinpoint Plus, that learning channel, the movement cycle and then the context. And I'm going to give an example to better conceptualize this Pinpoint Plus thing. Perfect. A lot of people say, oh, yeah, my child knows their ABCs. Well, that is a very imprecise way to describe what you are trying to say, because there are a lot of ways somebody can. And I'm using air quotes here. A lot of ways somebody can know their ABCs. Mm. You can say a child knows them, but like, how do they know them? Do they see the letters and say the letters? Do they hear mm. the letters and write the letters? Mm. Are they able to think the letters and say the letters? Those are all different ways. And if you're just saying knows their ABCs, when you're measuring it, you're mm. not going to be measuring it the same way every time because what are you measuring? So that learning sure. channel, let's say we want a student to be able to see and say their ABCs. Mm. So now we know the learning channel. Then the movement cycle is composed of a clear observable action verb and an object receiving the action. So the observable action verb could be says, and the object object receiving the action could be letters. So now we have see, say, says, letter. Mm -hmm. And then we have the context, the context in which the behavior is supposed to occur. Um, so we could say the context is that the teacher points to. So now the full thing is see, says, letter that the teacher points to. See, say, says, letter that the teacher points to. Mm -hmm. That is very short, yeah. very easy to detect and identify. And... It's going to get you a higher uh, IOA, higher higher inner observer agreement, yeah, which, yeah. ironically, in um, in the white book, they said that um, science is not predicated on two people seeing the same thing. Like just because you have a high IOA, two people could have seen the wrong thing and agreed. You know, if two people are mm. tripping off of shrooms and <laughs> they agree on seeing the same thing, <laughs> what's going on here? <laughs> Okay, that's that's awesome. All right, so uh, uh, you know, and again, and this seems to happen every time uh, you know I, I I have a conversation or learn a little bit about PT. I'm like, why aren't we doing all this stuff? And and I don't want to answer that question again. Uh, it's a bit more rhetorical, but it, it, you've got a 
much more sensitive and simpler operational definition. Like operational definitions in and of themselves are long. They could be like a paragraph mm -hmm. long. I mean, that's mm -hmm. a lot of work. And then you and then you get and then you get that criticized by your supervisor, you know, mm -hmm. which is their job. They give you feedback on it. But what is the feedback based on? How are they determining, you know, how that's based on sort of their own sort of subjective it's sort of opinions. subjective. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and it's interesting that their feedback is subjective for an objective definition. Whereas with the mm -hmm. pinpoint, it's clear. You got the learning channels. I won't get you to dive deep into sort of learning channels. And that sort of thing. There's lots of places folks can learn more about those sorts of details. But I do like that learning channel thing because, again, that's very, very specific. Uh, I really like this big six plus six. Again, really specific, basic kind of skills that folks have. All these kinds of pieces are really cool. Uh, just thinking about kind of how much time we have. Uh, you know, this is a, a really nice sort of basic kind of intro to, to PT. And it's something I, I should have I should have said from the beginning of the podcast. And I'll say it now, and I'll say it at the end, and you can say it again. Is it? Is it? Jared has an incredible Instagram channel. Um, and I, I don't know about, depending on how old folks are that are listening here, uh, some folks might not even be on Instagram and I get that. Um, but, um, and I think you've got a couple other areas where you, you maybe share some of this stuff, which we'll, we'll share at Facebook the end, and TikTok, yeah. There you go, perfect. And so Facebook Facebook for the folks my age, TikTok, TikTok for the kids and, yep. and Instagram for everyone in between. Um, and so... I struggle with Instagram a little bit myself, you know, there's a lot going on. There's lots of scroll mm -hmm. through, but, but your videos are just great. And I, I think, I think it's something that, that, are, that, that I've been really impressed with a lot of these sort of quote unquote influencers in our field uh, that are, that are using Instagram to get this behavior analytic information out to a wider audience um, and get them interested, get them thinking about it. You know, there's, there, you know, I, th I think, I mean, like you said, the SEC is not no longer even on, on a task list. So folks aren't really mm -hmm. focusing on that in their schooling. They're not necessarily focusing on that in their supervision. So you're providing an opportunity for folks to really, you know, be exposed to this really important science. And, and you, you, you know, you're, you're great at your craft on Instagram as well, in terms of kind of how you create videos and apply text and, and um, mm -hmm. very simple, short explanations about things. Tell that to um, the algorithm, please. <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's a great resource for folks that want to learn more about PT, struggle to read articles, you know, can't afford Rick, Rick's textbook, you know, mm -hmm. it's a great place to get an introduction to sort of all, all, all those pieces around PT, or around PT. So highly recommend. And and how I found Jared. I mean, I I, I was grateful to be able to meet Jared at the last Baba conference. Uh, shout out to the pen. And mm -hmm. um, and uh, but Instagram has just been it's just been an, it's a, it's an amazing resource for folks. So I highly recommend checking out. We'll share all the. Can I just say one thing about that real quick? Yeah. Um, when you go to my Instagram. You can swipe to the side. There's like a little book or you could press that little book on okay. my Instagram profile. And I have like little guides of different things. Like I have a section on precision teaching, a section on black history, a section on education, um, emotional behavior disorder. Like all the things I talk about can be uh, filed into a nice little area so that people can not just have to scroll all the way down through. They can see, oh, I'm really interested in this particular area. So I'm going to go to this section. Well, that would have made researching for this podcast way easier. <laughs> I wish I knew about that because I was scrolling. Um, <laughs> um, okay. So a couple things that 
and yeah, there's, and, and I'm glad you brought it up because there are some great sections on there. I mean, you've got some really, really cool things on Black history. Again, really just brief snippets that are about things that I never would have thought of, um, and especially kind of how and, and I do. I really like how you connect, you know, Black history to education and to to the science and whatnot, and, and all really cool. There's a couple of things that you um, you uh, you talk about that I, that I, I I wouldn't mind kind of getting into to kind of kind of wrap up a bit. First thing mm-hmm. is 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 um, uh, you mentioned early on uh, an ambition to become the the, the U.S. Secretary of Education, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, and 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 I get why, you know, I mean that that's sort of the the top spot in education. This is a way we can really you can really kind of take. All, all the good stuff you're doing and, and start changing the education system and getting them on board with all this stuff. Um, is, is that a, is that a, is that a, a real, a, a real goal? And, and, uh, and, and Jeff sort of any, have, have you, have you thought about sort of, you know, the, the route, the routes you might take to get there? Good question. Um, yes, it's a real goal. The way I see it, that's like being Hokage. If anybody watches Naruto, who's like the leader of the leaf village. Um, and, <laughs> I, I don't know if that position is just, you know, like a trinket, like yeah. um, they don't actually have any power. They just kind of be there yeah. Yeah, and yeah. they say things. Um, but if it actually does hold power, that's a goal. And I've thought a lot about how to get there. Um, and I thought about the stepping stones. The first step is getting this PhD. Um, and then the second step is to go be a professor and then make changes in educational policy. Mm. And then fortunately, you don't have to actually be elected to be secretary of education. Mm. You're selected by the president because it's a cabinet member. Oh. So um, hopefully through that, I can, I, I can get there. I've definitely gone through some routes to make connections with educational policy, learn about it, learn about how to make changes, learn about movers and shakers in in DC and stuff like that. But um, yeah, that's a, that's a real goal. I mean, aim for the stars, land on the cloud. You know, they told us that you could be whatever you want to be. I was like, all right, I'm aiming for the top. I don't want to be president, but I want to do this right here. And sorry, just, just again, not, not familiar with, with the, you know, sort of U S politics in any way. So you don't actually have to be a politician to be secretary of education. No, um, they're not. They're typically not. Um, most of them are, you know, principals or people who uh, do educational legislation. Um, they're like, uh, what do you call them? Uh, superintendents. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. People yeah. like that. And then okay, you, know, gotcha, you kind of gotcha. move through, you know, local, uh, state, right. and then sure. federal. Sure, sure, sure. Okay, well, because I was thinking about that myself. I was like, oh, poor Jared's going to have to get into politics first. And then how's that going to work? I am. Work? And, oh, man, well, my little brother's it. a lawyer, so he'll help me out. <laughs> he'll, he'll, he'll help you get there. So that's really cool. And so, you know, and so you might even find yourself sort of in role. Because I was wondering if, if you had sort of sort of smaller goals of sort of, um, I mean, it definitely sounds like you want to be an educator, um, mm-hmm. um, but like goals of sort of like maybe being a principal or being a superintendent and those sorts of things to sort of make changes, you know, in sort of smaller communities that can be used as an example to, for for kind of larger communities. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I'd be down. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I I definitely want to be a a college professor. Yeah. Um, but I. I, whatever position I hold, I want to, I always wanted to stay working with the kids. Yeah. I always wanted to actually like, you know, be on the ground. I never wanted to be a supervisor in, yeah. in uh, ABA because yeah. that always seemed like a terrible job. I want to be in the trenches. I want to be yeah, actually yeah, making yeah. changes and seeing yeah. stuff. Uh, not, not that supervisors aren't, but I'm just saying like, I, I like actually doing the work. Yeah. So then I realized, you know, educating future educators 
that, you know, I can, you know, I can work with helping more kids by helping more people who those kids are educated by. And then, you know, you go further up, you know, how are those laws and how are they written and how do we teach, you know, educators, you know, changing all that. But I have gotten opportunities when I moved back to try to uh, be at, you know, school district level by talking to different movers and shakers by talking about this stuff, some of the highlights, you know, that, that, you know, you can get to the 90th percentile of, you know, math by doing 30 minutes of PT a day. I mean, that was the Great Falls study. So saying those kind of things like, okay, well, how and show me and let's do it. Mm -hmm. You know, being able I'll always have those skills in my, you know, tool belt. And I'll always say yes to opportunities to help the kids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I had uh, Dr. Bruce Tenor on uh, a while back, and uh, he's a he's a principal in a school, and I just like how he's kind of taken the science into that administrator role and really trying to reshape a school uh, in a good way. And, and and I think we need to see more more of our folks in these sort of maybe non BCBA roles still be mm-hmm. in BCBAs, but in these non BCBA roles, uh, you know, kind of making changes in the in the environments. And so I think that's great. Um, so. Another thing I wanted to just ask a little bit about was um, um, you had you had kind of dropped some of these other things that uh, you know sort of as as Secretary of Education you know you you want to see kind of precision teaching in the schools you want to see the chart used everywhere you also talked about wanting to see more direct instruction and more personalized system of instruction in 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 kind of mm-hmm. in kind of those fields. I'm familiar with direct instruction a, a, a little bit, you know, it's kind of that call and response kind of stuff and, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, in, in group classrooms and I can totally see kind of how, you know, the PT would kind of equate in there. I just, I have, I've never had an opportunity to ask anybody about this. So I wonder if we could break down what, what the PSIs are. I don't know a lot about that area. Yeah, personalized systems of instruction. So Fred Keller, there's really good uh, paper. Uh, uh, I think it's um, Goodbye Teacher. And he talks about um, kind of personal systems of instruction where he starts to get into it. And what he did was he designed a class, a college course, where Mm. you can move through it at your own pace. And Mm. then when you finish, you're done and you get like, you know, we have grades. I don't think we need grades. I think it should be like leveling up in a video game. Once Mm. you level up and you get to the end of the level, then you're done and you move to the next level. Like, so ideally... And I, I've kind of the way that they did personal systems of instruction in later days kind of strayed away from the science of behavior. But ideally, what you want is you want to be able to move individuals through instruction at their own pace. Um, and then you don't have to worry about, you know, students having like p- people, they move students through school without mm. them actually learning the information yeah, to yeah. a fluent level. So personalized systems of instruction ensure that you can get done with the class and an A, just follow these instructions, get to this point and you're done. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and, and it's, it's not based on, you know, just this random like thing of time, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And students aren't left behind and we can identify where students are. So when we have those personalized systems of instruction, we can better personalize the instruction to the learner. And 
it really can improve, in my opinion, in my view, uh, the way that we educate. I don't see a lot of people talking about PSI. And I think that's no. because the way that they started, they it kind of died off. And sometimes they, you know, they left using, they set up, stopped using frequency for percent, which, you know, percent, I will, you know, P-O-O, percent opportunity occurrence. Don't use percent to measure behavior. Yeah. Um, or at least most of the time, not every time, most of the time. So yeah. uh, you won't hear it a lot, but I, I learned a little bit about it. I need to look into it more, but I'm in a P- PhD program and I don't have a lot of time to read just yeah, whatever yeah, yeah. I want. Um, <laughs> but from what I've learned is like, the way I would like it is to have that leveling system. Like imagine a skill tree uh, where yeah. you can just, you know, go and complete things and then you're done and you've reached the level of competence that is required to actually apply that behavior in the real world. Because if it's not applicable to the real world, and if you don't use it in the real world, what's the point in learning it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, that's cool. And I, you know, and I can see, I can see how the PSI would sort of conflict with the grade system, you know, yeah. sort of, you know, and, you know, and, and uh, you know, that's a, I'm sure that's a whole other, that's a whole other conversation for another day. The, 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 everything about our school system is, is, is so old and, and hasn't been changed in sort of eons, you know, from exactly everything, everything from the arrangement of a classroom with desks to, um, you know, how things are put on the wall to sort of to these grade levels and scoring everything. Mm-hmm. To, and to the age based graduate, uh, you know, levels, you know, you should be organized student organizing students by level of ability. So yeah. then the teacher doesn't have to differentiate all the time. They could yeah. teach the level of ability and then the students could actually progress faster yeah. because they're getting everybody's getting the amount of time, 100 percent of their time that they're receiving from the teacher yeah. is for that level. Um, and you know, people worry about, oh, but what if they're too old? You know, you want a, uh, second grader with an eighth grader. Well, you know, what you do is you group individuals of same ages and then you have them do peer coaching. So it's like, well, we're the same age, so we can, and we're at the same level. So we'll work together. And then two Mm -hmm. people who are at the same age and same level work together over there and then boom. Well, and at the same time, and this is, this is kind of really tangenting a bit, but you know, we've also drilled into our children's lives that your friends should be the same age as you. Yeah. You know, and that, and, and the school system has kind of created that, but we all know that as soon as we get out of school, you know, you know, when we hit adulthood, we're, you know, we're, we're, we're not, I'm, I'm 49. I'll just hang out with 49 year olds. Right. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know they call that age segregation. Yeah. And there, there's a lot of research on that. Um, and really we, we, we don't really, we shouldn't have that. There's a lot of research on it because, like how what are you gonna learn from your same age peers in in the instance of like how to perform better? Because a lot mm-hmm. of times they have a level of performance that's kind of capped off at that age. Mm-hmm. So when you meet peers that are at different ages, let's say like in the NBA, you know, if I'm a young Kobe Bryant and I'm like, you know, learning from an older Michael Jordan, then mm-hmm. I can kind of get those skills. You know what I mean? I need somebody that's older that's been through it that can mm-hmm. teach me in a safe environment. Yeah. So if I'm able to have that then I'm able to accelerate my learning to an incredible degree. Yeah. Yeah. Lots of opportunities to kind of, kind of make cool changes. Okay. So uh, you're, you're in your PhD program. Uh, is this, uh, are, are you at the dissertation level or are you just kind of, where, where are you at in your program? Good question. Um, so I am on my comps two composition exam two, which okay. means I have to write a paper and do an experiment, uh, do experiment and write a paper on that experiment. 
Um, after I do comps two, then, excuse me, I get up to kind of that uh, dissertation level where I kind of combine what I did in my comps one, comps two, and my dissertation into a big paper and then, you know, defend it and all that. Um, ideally, and right now it is October 13th, 2023. Hopefully, I'll be done by summer of 2024, wow. all depending upon whether my participants participate, whether IRB will approve my study, and also, you know, just me. So I'm really trying to work to get up and out of State College, Pennsylvania and back to California. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so what, what I know you'll, it'll, you'll have to kind of tweak it when you get to it, but but generally speaking, what are you what are, what are you looking at in your in your dissertation and your comp comp work? Oh, I'm going to work on inner behavior. I talked about earlier today about okay. measuring your inner thoughts, feelings, and urges, and increasing the um, the positive thoughts and decreasing the negative thoughts. I mean, we can use precision teaching and the science of behavior to measure those things. We call them private behavior, but you know, you have an observer, one mm -hmm. of one. You're the observer, so you can count them. You can count when mm -hmm. they happen, and then you can change the rate at which they occur you could you know uh, private behavior has is uh, private behavior is subject to the same laws and principles as public behavior yeah. so when we measure it when we measure and, and detect it precisely then we can identify different interventions that improve it so i'm going to work with kids in schools to decrease anxiety that's what i'm working on right now kids in school decrease anxiety and increase like confidence and enjoyment and happiness in school and i believe uh, we haven't got to here yet but i believe that's going to make them have a better uh time at school and then it will also make them have or allow them to enjoy school more and learn more and have better educational outcomes i mean there could be all these things now no studies have been done with this population yet with this you know with inner behavior but i'm excited to start there and if anybody is interested on research on inner behavior look up abigail calkin mm -hmm. um and look up inner behavior and there's a whole bunch of articles that she's done She's like, you know, the mother of it all. I'm talking to her and I'm asking her questions. She's like, are you still doing your, your dissertation on inner behavior? And I sent her my inner behavior standard acceleration chart. Nice. And, you know, she's she's a very awesome mentor to have. And she's very helpful. She actually uh, emailed me after doing a webinar yesterday. And she said, you had this many ums and this many you knows and this amount of time uh so you can decrease that doing this so let's you know yeah it, I, I think it'll be very helpful like it was really good feedback to help me yeah, become yeah. a better speaker so she's you know like helping me do identify all these ways that people become fluent speakers when you see these tech talks you know people don't have that many you knows and ums so how do i get there with yeah if I can get there without simply memorizing everything by just having fluent behavior of speaking, then I'm going to look super smart. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I hear you. I, I, that, that's a problem I have. I mean, I'm, I have the, I have the, the ability to edit out all my ums and ahs when I release these podcasts. <laughs> you would be surprised how many cuts are in these podcasts of ums and ahs and, and throat clears. Um, <laughs> I guess because because I've, I've I've learned the same. Oh, right on! I'm definitely gonna gonna, gonna reach out to her. So is this is this maybe? So there's a lot. I mean, it's interesting. We talk about their behavior and, and talk about sort of private events. A lot, most of the sort of conversations around this seem to be happening in kind of the RFT kind of act realm uh, in our field. That seems mm -hmm. where most of the conversation around kind of private events is happening. 
I don't think this makes you a, a you know a poor precision teacher if you don't know the answer to this question. But um, um, do you know if there's is this sort of the first time that we've looked at that, that folks have looked at persistent teaching and inner behavior together? Like, are are you like a are you like kind of pioneering this? Like, have have folks hmm. in the, in, the, in those areas used this to kind of kind of look at this? Because I've never heard of this before talking to you. The third secret word is secretary. Well, I have a video on this. Uh, in, in relational frame theory, there's yep. stimulus equivalence. But what if I told you that's just one of five known kinds of generative responding through contingency adduction? Lots of big words, but mm. basically um, <laughs> it's it's really a way that our RFT is really a way that our behavior, the environment adduces behavior. And I'm still learning about how to explain it. Sure, and sure. there's a lot of awesome research by uh, uh, Joe Lang, okay, Joe yeah. L-A-Y-N-G. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, if he hears his podcast, uh, LeBron is better than Jordan and I'll see you <laughs> next time. And we'll have that argument again. Um, but he has a lot of super awesome research as well as Morningside Academy where mm, they like talk about, right. you know, contingency adduction and generative responding and how like, how behavior is, you know, RFT is just one of five known ways that it happens. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. like when I heard that, my mind blew. So because because RFT is really big and yep. ACT is really big. And there are the, the name RFT was kind of uh, used in place of contingency adduction of generative responding or what have you. And if people knew about it, they can be like, OK, so. RFT is this real small part of this much larger thing that occurs with our behavior and our interactions with the mm. environment. And we only know of five right now, five ways that this happens. Uh, so I, I have a video on that too, where I explain it better. Uh, but, you know, go ahead and look that up. <laughs> Absolutely. No, 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 no. And, and, I, and I, yeah, I certainly didn't mean to put you on the spot on that. Cause I, I know when in that video, which, you know, isn't that old? Because you're 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 at the uh, the Morningside Academy summer thing this past summer, mm -hmm. and that's where you learned about all this super exciting stuff. And so you know it's only been a couple months, but that that's a great video, and and we'll 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 link folks to sort of that that particular one because I think that that's a really helpful one. Really cool, really cool. I I, I love that uh, your 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 doctoral work is 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 looking at this piece. I think it's gonna be this could be uh you know a, a real groundbreaking study potentially. You know, uh, and and. I have no doubt it's going to work because you've already, we've already talked, you've already shown about how it kind of worked for yourself, you know, you know, mm -hmm. you, 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 you've, you've seen it in action personally. So, you know, uh, now, now you're just going to try and try and set this up with the kids. I think it's going to be super cool, super awesome. Um, I also know you've got um, um, something coming up and I don't know if uh, this episode will come out before that, but uh, you're doing some stuff. You're doing, you're doing something soon with, uh, with uh, Kirk Kirby around, um, uh, this thing called dropping dots and uh, around uh, around kind of using I guess this is around kind of using PT and sports is that is that what that's about what are you guys what are you guys going to be talking about yeah actually I just uh, did it day before yesterday oh okay we we, we, we produced that and anybody can go and even get a CEU on it but we we'll talk about how important it is to use precision teaching with athletic performance and I kind of talked about that stuff with Steph Curry being yeah, fluent yeah. in shooting and there's actually so much. Like there's a little bit of there's quite a bit of 
uh, information out there on measuring sports performance using precision teaching, also music with precision teaching. It's crazy mm. the stuff that that was with. But um, you can really identify ways to improve your athletic performance by measuring it, measuring what you're doing, and then improving it and finding different interventions. This one dude named Steve Graff, you need to go to his website, Steve Graff. Um, he has all these charts and he had a he has a daughter is I think two daughters but one of his daughters was shooting basketball and she was in like high school she because he like used the standard acceleration chart she in like the 80s had the highest three point percentage of any male or female in the state and still holds that record today because he used uh, precision teaching and charting with the standard acceleration chart to measure the change in, you know, her shots. And he, he measured, like, I saw he was measuring his free throws for like years back in 86, all the way to like 90 something. He was just wow. getting out there, getting the shots up and measuring it and putting it on the standard acceleration chart. So, I mean, we can do this and improve athletic performance. So check that out. Uh, you'll get a CEU. It's only an hour long. And yeah. I also talk about the taxonomy of learning at least one column of it uh, in detail. And what's that through? Like, where, where can folks find that? Is that like a behavior yeah. live kind of thing? or? Uh, you can find it at the Acceleration Society's website, okay. acceleration.org, which you should also go to try to get... Uh, so that you can apply to go to the Standard Acceleration Society conference every mm -hmm. year. There's going to be one. Uh, I'll be there. I'll be there every time. But this <laughs> November 11th, I don't know if this is coming out before then, yeah. but it'll it'll be then and next year to be around November 11th as, as well. Yeah, um, yeah. That's the best place to go to get uh, a person to be your uh, chart parent. Hard parent, thank you. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, is, is the SEC conference, um, uh, you know, something you'd recommend folks that don't know much about PT to go to, or is it is it made for sort of the pros? No, absolutely, it's made for people to go to, and they actually have workshops on teaching you how to precision teach mm. and, and how to chart on the standard acceleration chart. I mean, I, I would say it's one of the best places to learn how to chart on the standard acceleration chart because mm. you're there with so many people. They have mentorship programs. They have, you know, students. Um, you could be a student and go there for like, you could go there for free if you get uh, a scholarship and you can have all these opportunities. It's, it's like the best. I would, I would mm. highly recommend it. Right. On, right. On. Okay. Well, let's wrap this up. This is just super awesome. I learned so much. It was really cool. Uh before we go, can you just uh, one more time uh, share sort of all the places folks can find you? Yeah. Um, on Instagram, you can find me at Jared Van underscore. That's at J-A-R-E-D-V-A-N underscore. Uh, on TikTok, you can find me at Jared V underscore. Um, if you want to email me, you have any questions, feel free. That's jared.van92 at gmail.com. That's emails jared.van92 at gmail.com. And feel free to reach out. I'd be happy to help anybody with any questions. Awesome. Uh, this was so cool. And and definitely uh, you know, next summer when you're when 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 you're Dr. Van, I want to have you back and hear how this dissertation went. 
Oh, absolutely. I'll let yeah. you know. <laughs> right on. Cool. Thanks so much, Jared, for coming on. This was really, really, really fascinating. My pleasure. And thank you for having me. I mean, it's really, really awesome to ha have you let me, you know, talk about this stuff and nerd out with you. And I hope to be somebody with fewer ums and you knows by then. <laughs> <laughs> You'll get there. You'll get there. I have no doubt. Cool. Thanks, man. Thank you.